It's Wednesday, August 17th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, American Airlines has signed up for a supersonic boost, plus how to find the sweetest watermelon and a brief history of the fruits. And Papa John's is throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. And coincidentally, that seems to be the same strategy they used for their newest menu item, just throwing everything in it at once. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. A not-yet-well-known Denver-based aerospace manufacturer just made one of their biggest deals yet. Boom Supersonic has signed a deal with American Airlines, the world's largest airline, to buy at least 20 of Boom's supersonic overture passenger jets. If all goes well, we could be looking at commercial flight times cut in half by the end of the decade. For some people, anyways. According to The Verge, Boom has said that tickets on their supersonic jets could initially cost as much as $5,000 per seat, but American has yet to say anything about potential pricing. And Boom founder and chief executive Blake Scholl told The Guardian that his ultimate goal is for people to get anywhere in the world in five hours for a hundred bucks. Lofty goals. Boom's Overture aircraft will not be the first supersonic commercial aircraft. That honor goes to the famous Concorde, which shuttled the elites around the world at Mach 2 speeds from 1969 to 2003. That's twice the speed of sound. Primarily operated by British Airways and Air France, the Concorde could go from London to New York in just three hours, compared to the six and a half to seven it takes on a typical airliner. Following a tragic takeoff crash in 2000 that killed 113 people, as well as unsustainable fuel costs and noise complaints from locals near airports, the Concorde stopped flying in 2003. Now, Boom wants to bring back supersonic commercial flights. The Overture aircraft will be a bit slower than the Concorde, flying at Mach 1.7, but still promises to take passengers from New York to London in just three and a half hours, or from Los Angeles to Sydney in just under seven. The aircraft will only have 65 to 88 seats, less than the Concorde, and initially at least those will be business class only, so not quite at that 100 price tag just yet. American is not the first to place an order with Boom. United Airlines ordered 15 of these supersonic jets last year, and Boom has various types of contracts with companies including Virgin Atlantic, Japan Airlines, Rolls-Royce, Northrop Grumman, and the U.S. Air Force. Despite all of these working agreements, the jets haven't actually been built yet. Boom recently released new designs and says that they plan to begin production on the supersonic overture aircraft in 2024. They'll perform the first flight in 2026 and hope to start commercial flights by 2029. From Space.com, quote, The Boom Supersonic Overture Passenger Jet features a tapered fuselage featuring a larger diameter at its front than at its rear. The company claims this design helps to minimize the drag experienced by the aircraft while also optimizing fuel efficiency. Four jets mounted under the wings will give the Overture maximum speeds of over Mach 1.6 when flying over water, and slightly under Mach 1 when over land. 
end quote. And the Dallas Morning News further explains the water versus land speed difference, quote, under current rules, planes must stay below the speed of sound while traveling over land, but can use supersonic speeds over oceans. Supersonic flying is banned over land in the United States because of the loud booms it produces. But groups such as Lockheed Martin and NASA are working on aerodynamic designs that both quiet the supersonic boom and direct it upward to make it more tolerable to people on the ground. There are rules against flying at faster than sound speeds over land in most parts of the world. Boom is hoping to change that, at least for travel over oceans. The company says its supersonic jet design is more fuel efficient because of its aerodynamic design and that it can fly without afterburners to reduce noise and fuel burn. The Overture design also would fly cooler than the Concorde design, which faced durability issues because it would get hot during flight due to friction between the aircraft's exterior parts and the surrounding air. End quote. But for all of those efforts to reduce noise and become more fuel efficient, skeptics remain. Quoting The Verge, Boom has said the jets will be net zero carbon and optimized to run on 100% sustainable aviation fuel. But so far, the company has yet to provide additional details about what kinds of fuel they'll be using or how they would achieve net zero carbon emissions. Environmental groups are worried that faster speeds will equate to more pollution. The global aviation industry produces around 2% of all human-induced CO2 emissions, but supersonic jets are known to be far more polluting. Boom says it will be carbon neutral as a goal, but simply put, it takes more fuel to go faster. End quote. And even though I know these are not the same things, I just can't help but feel like I would rather see big investments in cross-country high-speed trains here in the U.S., Though, I don't know, maybe we get to a place where trains replace domestic air travel here, and then planes are primarily used for international travel, which maybe becomes a little more common with supersonic jets that can get you there faster. Or maybe we should just focus on making planes electric. But according to a recent analysis reported on by the MIT Technology Review, current technology would only be able to carry about a dozen passengers 30 miles at a time. Like with most electric vehicles, the culprit is the battery. Despite advances in recent decades, we're just not there yet when it comes to packing enough energy into the small space required of a battery to power an entire commercial plane. But it's something worth continuing to work towards. As the MIT Tech Review points out, a battery-powered plane charged with renewable energy could produce nearly 90% less in emissions than today's planes that run on jet fuel. That's according to the International Council on Clean Transportation. A number of companies are making strides, Swedish-based startup Hart Aerospace has a 19-seater plane that they're planning to start testing in 2024 on short routes like across fjords in Scandinavia. They say their planes could fly as much as 250 miles on current battery technology, but doing so would require carrying three and a half tons of batteries on board, the combined capacity of which is roughly comparable to eight to ten electric vehicles, according to the Tech Review. And quoting further, reserve requirements could severely limit the true range of electric planes. A plane needs extra capacity to circle the airport for 30 minutes in case it can't land right away, and it must be able to reach an alternative airport 100 kilometers or 60 miles away in an emergency. When you take all that into account, the usable range of a 19-seat plane goes from about 160 miles to about 30 miles. For a larger aircraft like the 100-seat planes that Wright Electric is building, it's less than 6 miles." 
end quote. The ICCT analysis says that even doubling the energy density and reaching the limit of lithium-ion batteries' potential, electric aircraft would only displace enough jet fuel aircrafts to cut global emissions from the industry by less than a percentage point by 2050. Not quite good enough for the speed at which the climate crisis is progressing. However, novel types of batteries, green hydrogen, and alternative fuels all present other possibilities, though just as long shot or more in some cases. Unfortunately, we will probably get the fuel-guzzling supersonic commercial jets for wealthy international travelers before we get the eco-friendly electric commercial flights for anyone else. As summer begins winding down, you might want to buy one last watermelon to enjoy before they disappear from store shelves. And if you do, apparently, you should pick out the ugliest watermelon at the store. Chef and creator Mai Win recently shared an old hack that she learned from her dad to find the sweetest watermelon. Instead of a dark green watermelon with perfectly patterned, undisturbed lines, you actually want to find one with a big yellow patch, a lot of webbing, and some brown spots. The yellow patch, according to Win, means it was laying out in the sun, ripening for longer. The webbing is caused by bee pollination, so the more of that the melon has, the sweeter it will be. And if you see those rough, dark spots, those are actually sugar seeping through the rind, a sign that the fruit is indeed super sweet. You also want to do a bit of a weight test. A dense, heavy melon means it's full of water and not dry. Knowing the ins and outs of watermelons isn't super common anymore, but back in the day, way back in the day, watermelons were known for all sorts of different functions, but being a sweet summer treat was not one of them. As Atlas Obscura explains, ancient watermelons were quite different in characteristics from what we know today. They were pale green on the inside and bland or bitter to taste. But archaeological evidence has shown that they were being cultivated for hundreds of years before becoming a tasty snack, because they served other purposes. Quoting Atlas Obscura, Native to Africa, watermelons have been grown throughout the continent since ancient times. In southwest Libya, 5,000-year-old seeds were excavated, and watermelon remnants from 1500 BC have been discovered in the foundational deposits beneath walls of a Sudanese temple. Archaeologists have also found seeds and paintings of various species of watermelon in ancient Egyptian tombs, dating back from as long as 4,000 years ago. These species include wild watermelons as well as the oblong predecessors of the dessert watermelon. End quote. And according to horticulturalist Harry S. Paris, the watermelon predecessors were likely being used for their water, a sort of natural canteen. Watermelons today contain up to 92% water and are still recommended to combat dehydration, so it's not surprising they may have been used in ancient times as water and food for livestock, and maybe humans too. Pharaohs like King Tut were found to have watermelons in their tombs, possibly to keep them hydrated on their journey to the afterlife. As trade spread the watermelons to Greece, they started being used for medicinal purposes. They were used to cool people, especially children, to prevent heat stroke, and also, at least according to notes left behind by physicians, used as diuretics and maybe laxatives. 
By the time the watermelon made it to ancient Greece in about 400 BCE, it also might have started to become a bit more palatable. Atlas Obscura notes that some varieties were eaten, and Pliny the Elder noted how refreshing they were. Once we moved into the Common Era, though, Paris believes the watermelons started getting sweeter, growing closer to the modern version we're familiar with today, at least according to 2nd century Hebrew texts and 6th century Latin texts, which both categorized watermelons with other sweet fruits like figs and grapes. And a little bonus fact for you to transition us from the end of summer into the start of fall. When the watermelon emerged in Greece, they called it the pipon. In Latin, it was pipo, P-E-P-O. And those words weren't reserved just for the watermelon. Pipo meant to ripen or cook by the sun, often used in reference to something that would grow quite large. Pliny the Elder once said, When the cucumber acquires a very considerable size, it is known to us as the pipo. It was therefore a rather broad term, but the one Pipo that retained the name etymologically is fellow Cucurbitaceae family member the pumpkin. From the Latin Pipo, the French got Pompion, which originally just meant any large fruit or gourd, especially melons. When colonizers first encountered the pumpkin in America, they classed it as such, calling it the Pompion. It would be years before the squash's name eventually evolved into pumpkin. Melons, pumpkins, squash, in a lot of ways, they're basically all the same thing. But these days, you don't need to add a whole bunch of sugar and cinnamon to watermelons to make them tasty like you do for pumpkins. Just look for the ugliest one at the grocery store. Cauliflower crust has been a huge boon for gluten-free pizza lovers. Available in an increasing number of pizza shops, as well as from numerous brands and frozen varieties, but Papa John's is giving you another option. Instead of one of their gluten-free ancient grains pies, why not ditch the crust altogether and throw all the toppings, the cheese, and the sauce into a bowl? Coming on August 22nd is the controversial pizza chain's Papa Bowls. Everyone's making bowls these days, and Papa John's apparently wanted to get into the game. They come in three versions, Italian Meats Trio, Chicken Alfredo, and Garden Veggie. And it's literally like just scraping off all the toppings of a pizza and sticking them in a disposable black takeout dish housed in a cardboard sleeve that makes them look menacingly like Hot Pockets. The pizza bowls look more like casserole or mushed-up leftovers than a pseudo-healthy bowl that you might get from Sweet Greens or a poke restaurant. Though, according to CNN, while the company's original idea for the bowls was as a healthy alternative, they ended up learning that people still want the indulgence of pizza, so the bowls are intentionally loaded up with cheese and delicious toppings. CNN also notes that the new bowl line is partially inspired by slow growth in the company's second quarter. Papa John's SVP of Menu Strategy and Innovation says that people writ large are experiencing pizza fatigue. But the response to that claim online is that people are just experiencing Papa John's fatigue. As one Twitter user, Caffeine and Hate, tweeted, quote, People never stopped being excited about pizza. They stopped being excited about Papa John's. End quote. And user Danielle Blake tweeted, quote, I would have thought hating Papa John's pizza is a sign of continued enthusiasm for pizza, not a lack of it. End quote. 
Papa John's had a string of controversies over the last several years, many of them stemming from racist and increasingly unhinged comments from their founder and former CEO, John Schnatner. After stepping down as CEO in 2018, he was asked to resign from the board of directors in 2019. The company has been attempting to distance themselves from his bad press since then, but it is a tough stain to get out. Still, as the fourth largest pizza delivery restaurant chain in the U.S., and the only pizza restaurant in so many towns, the company continues to thrive. Their slowed growth could be a result of their waning popularity in the wake of controversy, or maybe people really are experiencing a bit of pizza fatigue. When Domino's closed their last franchise in Italy this month, they cited a similar reason. The popularity of delivery services means people have more options than just pizza for delivery, so all pizza companies have been reporting more competition. In response to these pizza bowls, however, I like Amy Brown's take on Twitter, quote, I hope Papa John's keeps making more and more bizarre pizza-adjacent foods until we reach, like, pizza milkshake. I mean, why not? World's burning. Drink your pizza. End quote. Well, that's going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.